think, I think that we covered the main things you need to know about the get process. And again, my uh, sincere, heartfelt bracha is you only need to know about this theoretically, and it should never be no gale Maisa in any way. But still, you know, it's Torah, it's any part of Torah, it's worthwhile to, uh, to learn about. Uh, so we've covered marriage, we've covered divorce, uh, we looked at birth control and abortion, I, I think we did, right? We did, we looked at that. So now, totally new subject, not much, nothing to do with anything we talked about before. Uh, and, you know, last uh, Sunday night, Monday was Tu B'Shvat, so there are some things I want to talk about, not so much Tu B'Shvat, but I want to talk about halachos that are relevant to Eretz Yisrael. Because one of the things we think about on Tu B'Shvat is we think about the special payros of Eretz Yisrael, and the special payros of Eretz Yisrael have many, many halachos. Now, in truth, some of this you don't have to know because if you rely on hashkacha, so the supervision will take care of it for you. So in a sense, I just buy with a reliable hashkacha, and I don't have to know it. But sometimes, you know, you might be in a place, you might be uh, in the middle of the Negev or something, and you want to buy apples or you want to buy uh, something, and uh, there's no supervision. Now, as you know, Eretz Yisrael is, is, more, is more difficult, even though, Baruch Hashem, we have more hashkachas here, but it's harder to keep kosher in Israel without hashkacha than it is in America. In America, I could tell you, oh, okay, you can always buy fruit. What's wrong with fruit? Well, here, there's a lot of problems with fruits, right? So you can't even buy fruit unless it's under supervision, unless uh, you, know, you know what to do, right? So I'm going to spend uh, maybe a week or two weeks uh, just going over some of these halachas, so at least you'll, have, you'll, at least you'll know what hashkachos do for you. You see, that can do quite a lot in terms of enabling you to eat. But before I do that, let me just mention two halachos in the laws of brachos, because I don't know if maybe this was discussed, in your Tu classes, but when you read a lot of different things, so there are two halakhic questions. You're eating a lot of food. You have cake, and you have ice cream, and you have uh, pretzels, right? Potato chips, uh, all of these things. So the question is, what order do you make brachos? Meaning, when you have a lot of food. Now, if you're having a bread meal, that's not a big deal. You wash on bread, and that's going to cover a lot of stuff. But let's assume you're not washing on bread, so you're going to have to make a separate bracha on each type of food. So is there, a, you're going to have to make oats on the fruit and adama on the vegetables and shahakol on the drinks and mizonos on the cake, right? So is there an order by which you make brachos? So actually there is an order, meaning to say... Uh, you're supposed to make brachos by a certain chashivas, a certain status of how important the food is. And the more important the food is, it gets priority in brachos. So let me give you the list of priority in what order do you make brachos. And it'll be a little surprising because we actually don't follow it uh, in Kiddush. Order number one is (coughs) bread or mizonos whether it's bread or cake, whether it's hamotzi or mizonos, that always comes first. That comes ahead of everything. Which means, even though, this is a little paradoxical, when it comes to Kiddush Friday night or Shabbos morning, you make a bracha on wine before you have bread or cake. But that's a special rule for Kiddush. If you're having, let's say, wine and cake in the middle of the week, 
you actually make the mizonos on the cake before you make the hagafen on the wine. So it's a reversal of kiddush. So, so number one priority is mizonos or hamotzi. Of course, hamotzi will cover a lot of other things. Number two is if there's wine, borei priagafen. If there is, you know, if there isn't, there isn't. Number three, borei priaets on fruits. Number four, borei priadama on vegetables. And number five, the generic bracha of shahakol on whether it's meat or eggs or fish or water or whatever, whatever it would be. Okay? So that's an important halacha to know. When I have many different types of foods and I'm going to make different brachos for those foods, I should follow this particular order in making it. Now, let me just mention one other thing. That is, uh, when you make Berei Priyagafen on wine, that actually covers every <coughs> drink you have that would normally be a shakot. So let's assume uh, you're having wine. This is true on Shabbos or during the week. If you have wine and later you're going to drink soda, you don't have to make a bracha on the soda because the wine, just like hamotzi covers the foods, so Berei Priyagafen covers the drinking. But if you're going to make a shahakol on something else, on a solid food, like a piece of fish, Berei Priyagafen doesn't cover that. In other words, the, the Berei Priyagafen exempts you from a shahakol on liquids. It does not exempt you from a shahakol on solid. Okay, so that's uh, rule number one. I gave you two rules. Rule number one is the order of brachos when you make many brachos. And rule number two is the rule that a Berei Priyagafen on liquids does exempt shahakol on other liquids, but it does not exempt a shahakol on solid. And again, although most of us, unless you like to drink, uh, most of us really only have wine on Shabbos, but, but, but the, the, the halacha is exactly the same even if you have wine during the week. This is not a special Shabbos rule or anything, anything like that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, wine and liquid, other liquids. Oh, okay. So, so, uh, so it's the same thing. The, the bracha chrona of wine will cover the, the other liquids. You, don't, you do not make a barina fashos. On the other hand, if you're eating some solid food, that's shahakol, you would make a barina fashos. Okay. Now, rule number two is a fruit rule. Right? Let's say you have many different types of fruits. Now, for sure, you don't have to make a beret prior eights on every fruit, right? It's, it's a well-known idea that if I have apples and oranges and pears and dates and figs, I make one beret prior eights, and that covers all the fruit, right? So that's not the question. But the question is, which fruit should you choose to make the bracha on and cover the other fruits? So, if you have fruits that are not of the seven species, Let's say you have apples, pears, apricot, right, etc., nectarine. So the rule is pretty simple. You're supposed to make the bracha on the fruit that you like most. So if you like uh, nectarine more than an apple, you make the ho'ets on the nectarine. Uh, if you like an apple more than a nectarine, you make the ho'ets on the apple, and that covers the other fruit. Okay, That's called chaviv. Now, 
this is even such a simple rule like this is a little complicated because there's another rule that says that if one fruit is whole and another fruit is only a piece, you should make a bracha on the whole rather than a partial. So this raises a very interesting machlokas. What if the fruit that I like more is incomplete? <coughs> so do I choose the fruit that I like even though it's cut, it's a cut fruit? Or do I choose the fruit that's whole even though it's not the one that I like? So that's actually a machlokas. Uh, but halacha, we say, go with the whole over the one that you like. Okay. But all of this is only if the fruits are not of the seven species. Actually, actually five species, because the first two of the seven species are mazonos, right? Now, the seven species are the seven special agricultural products that Eretz Yisrael is praised for. So let's enumerate them. Right? You should know them. Chita, wheat, saora, barley, now, those are not really fruits because we make a mizonos on them, so we can almost exclude them from the question here. Uh, then we have geffen. Geffen is the fruit of the vine, which is grape. Teina is fig. Rimon is pomegranate. Zeis shemen is olives. Right, Zeis shemen means olives that have oil. It's not olive oil. Olive oil is the opposite, shemen, zayas. Zay shemen are olives that have oil. And the last one is devash. Now, this is very important. I'm sure you know this, but just to be sure. Uh, devash means honey, but it does not refer to bee honey. It refers to date honey, or dates, either dates or date honey. That's one of the seven species. These are the seven species <coughs> that Eretz Yisrael is praised for. Now, people ask a question, really. It's not so simple. Like, why are these a big deal? Like, why, don't, why doesn't the Torah include apples or pears? Like, why, why, why are these seven so special that these are the ones that are singled out? It's a pomegranate, you know, better than an apple, whatever. So I once saw an article, it's more of a scientific article, but it was a very fascinating article that the interesting thing about these seven is that the climactic conditions that you need to grow them are opposites. Some of them need more water, some need less water. Some need more shade, some need more sun. And what the Torah is praising is that HaKadosh Baruch Hu made Eretz Yisrael, that it has all the different types of climates, that even things that need opposite climates can grow. In fact, it's very remarkable. Eretz Israel has a tremendous diversity of climate. We have deserts. We have mountains. Uh, you know, valleys, different, you know, one place it rains, one place it doesn't rain, one place it's hot, one place it's cold. Uh, and a Kaddish Baruch Hu, like, put, like, all the different climates of the world in this small little land so all different things can grow even though they're opposite. So the reason why it mentions these seven and again, this article goes through these specifics. I don't even remember all the specifics. But it goes through these seven to kind of show me that uh, Eretz Israel has every type of climate. Okay. Uh, so, 
If, if your fruits are not of the seven species, you go with the one you like most. If you like both of them the same, you go with the whole versus the, uh, the, the partial. If you have one of the seven species, you make the bracha on the seven species. Okay, so now let's go further. What if I have several different types of species? I have grapes and figs and dates and pomegranates. Which one should I make the bracha within the seven species? Which one? So this is where it gets a little complicated. You actually follow the order of the pasuk, but with a certain subtlety. A certain subtlety. Now again, we can actually eliminate wheat and barley because they're going to be first anyway. They're, they're first because Mizonos is always before Hoedz. So we can forget about wheat and barley and we can start with Gefen. Grapes are number three. Te'ena is number four. Rimon, pomegranate, is number five. Now then you would think Ze Shemen is number six, and Devash is number seven, but that's not true. And the reason is, when you count the number, you count from the word Eretz, and the word Eretz appears twice in the Pesach. Eretz, Chita, Saora, Gefen, Te'ina, Rimon, Eretz, Ze Shemen, Udvash. Which actually means Instead of olives and dates being five, six and seven, olives and dates are actually one and two, as measured from the second Eretz. So that means, because of the double mention of Eretz, and again, I'm factoring out wheat and barley because they're Mizonos, the order actually would be olive, date, grape, fig, Pomegranate. Did everyone understand the cheshman here? So therefore, if I have a whole bunch of fruits, if I have an olive, the olive would be the one I make the ha'etz on. And if I don't have an olive, then I have a date, I would make it on the date. Uh, if I don't have a date, I would make it on the grape. If I don't have a grape, I would make it on the fig. Assuming that's been checked for bugs. Some people don't eat figs at all because it's hard to check. If I don't have a fig, well, of course, then by definition, I would make it on the pomegranate because that's the only one of the seven species I have, but you'd make it on the, on the pomegranate. Okay? Now, let me clarify a very common misconception. Many people think on Tubishvat, I have to eat the, these fruits in this order. See, that's not emes. This priority rule simply tells me which one I make a bracha on. But once I've made my bracha, I can eat the other fruits in any order I want, meaning I don't have to eat the fruits in this order. This is simply a directive which one I make the bracha on. In other words, I make the bracha based on this list. Once I make the bracha, I can eat any fruits. That, in fact, I don't even have to eat the other shibasaminim. I can eat uh, the other fruits and the like. Yeah. If you have sliced olives and a whole pomegranate, yeah, that's a very excellent question, but it seems that you do. It seems, it seems that, that, that you do, okay? So those are some things you need to know about um, the laws of brachos. Number one, the order of which brachos you make when you're making many different brachos. 
And number two, when you're making one bracha of ha'etz, <coughs> which fruits do you make the bracha of ha'etz on? And I, again, I don't know if you had a Tubishvat Seder or not, but uh, you probably, if you did, I'm sure you, you discussed those, those halachas and the like. Okay. But now I want to talk about a, a whole special category of called mitzvos toluyos biaretz. I'm sorry, someone, uh, yeah. Mitzvos toluyos biaretz means mitzvos that depend on the land. And these are special mitzvos that are connected only to the land of Israel that do not apply outside of the land of Israel. Uh, one of the most famous is something we just experienced a few months ago, of course, that is Shemitah, right? which I'm not going to talk about today that much. We have six, <laughs> six and a half years uh, before we have to uh, go over Shemitah again, but maybe I'll get to it a little later. Uh, the, the idea that the land must rest and you're not allowed to farm the land for a whole year, that only applies in the land of Israel, uh, in, in New York or California. You're allowed to farm your land, right? Uh, taking off truma to give to a kohen and maser to give to a levi, that also only applies in the land of Israel uh, for the produce that grows in the land of Israel, right? And this is because of the special holiness of Eretz Israel. There are special mitzvahs that are connected. But for today, I actually want to pick an agricultural mitzvah that applies even outside of Eretz Israel, which is really rare. Right, so in a sense, what I'm doing now is a mitzvah that's not toluya ba'aretz, even though it's connected to the land, to the ground, and that is the law of orla. Orla. Now, the law of orla is a rule that says, when a tree is planted, any fruit that grows within the first three years of the tree being planted is totally forbidden. Uh, it, actually, the Torah seems to say you burn it. Uh, people ask Akash, why don't we burn it? But at, at a minimum, you have to throw it away and you're not allowed to eat it. Now, I, again, I want to clarify a common misconception. There are some people who, who, who interpret this to mean that the fruit is forbidden for three years and after three years, you can eat it. Not right. The fruit that grows during the three years is forbidden forever. It's not just forbidden for three years. If it grew during the three years, it can never be eaten. If it grows after the three years, because I'm using an ambiguous term. What do I mean by growing? I, I, I will define it. But if it grows after the three years, then it is permitted. Right? This is called orla. And orla is the same word as for a, a, a baby, uncircumcised. An uncircumcised child or person, man, is called orel. And orla also is the same idea, that it's prohibited, it's closed up, we're not allowed to, to uh, use it or benefit from it in any way. Now, what is unique about Orla is that Orla is a law that doesn't only apply in the land of Israel, it even applies in Chutz La'aretz. So let me ask you a very simple question. Everybody knows I can go to a supermarket in America and I can buy apples 
Now, or the, well, let me say, or the only applies to fruit trees. It does not apply to vegetables. So carrots, peas, that's not a problem. But it does apply to fruits that grow on trees. So everybody knows I can buy an apple in America. I can buy a pear. How can I do that? Maybe it's Orla, right? Maybe it's Orla. Yeah, and if I don't have rabbinic supervision, how do I know it's not Orla? So the answer is this. Uh, again, this is, gets complicated. That although the law of Orla applies both in Eretz Yisrael and in Chutz Laaretz, the severity of the law differs. And that is, in Eretz Yisrael, if you're not sure if something is Orla, you have to err on the side of strictness. So yeah, in Eretz Yisrael, I cannot buy an apple unless there's certification with Hashkacha that it's not Orla. But in Chutz Aretz, the Torah only prohibits Vadai Orla. Vadai Orla means definite Orla. The Torah permits Suffolk Orla. Suffolk means you don't know. Which means, unlike the normal rule about kashrus, right? What's the rule of kashrus generally? If I don't know if something is kosher or treif, I certainly can't eat it. Maybe it's treif. Uh, you can't walk in and say, I don't know if it's kosher. If you don't know if it's kosher, you can't eat it. But orla is an exception. Orla is a rule that in chutzla aretz, if you don't know that it's orla, the Torah allows you to give yourself the benefit of the doubt. So that is why in America, I say even saying America, I'm America-centric, but I know people are from different countries, but outside of the land of Israel, I can buy fruit without worrying, that, assuming it's not imported from Israel. Uh, I can buy fruit without worrying because this is the halacha that a suffolk orla is permitted. However, if you know for sure it's orla, it's even usher and chutzlaris. Now, in a supermarket, you never know, right? So, of course, I, I buy fruit. I, I don't know if it's orla. But you know where you would know? If you yourself are a gardener, if you yourself plant a tree or whatever it would be, you have the laws of orla for three years. Now, this is where things get very complicated. So now I'm going to have to talk about something that's really, really technical. But if you like really technical stuff, I think you'll find it interesting. If you don't like technical stuff, uh, you have my commiseration and my, my, my sympathy that you're kind of stuck for a little bit. I won't, I, try, I won't try not to make it too long. And that is how you count Orla years. Right? It's not like you would think. You would figure three years means three years. Whenever I plant it, I count three years. And that's Orla. Not quite. Uh, halacha recognizes a certain concept that sometimes... Miktsat Hashana, part of a year, may count as a whole year. And the way it works is the following. A tree that was planted on the 15th of Av, 15th of Av. Now, why is the 15th of Av important? The 15th of Av has many, many symbols, but this is uh, unrelated to that, the other things that it's famous <coughs> for. The 15th of Av is 45 days before the end of the year. The new year begins on Tishrei, 
If you count backwards 45 days, just trust me on this if you don't see it, it's the 15th of Av. Including but not including? Uh, well, not including Rosh but if you count 15th of Av through the 29th of Elul, including the 15th of Av, that's 45 days. So the halacha basically says, if the tree had 45 days in the year, that counts as year one. So let's take a concrete example of how long Orla lasts. I plant a tree, because we'll discuss how that works with nurseries, but I plant a tree on the 15th of Av, or earlier, earlier is even better, but if I plant it on the 15th of Av, and let's assume, let's go with last year, uh, I planted in 5782. If I planted on or before the 15th of Av, when Rosh Hashanah of 5783 comes, that counts as one year, even though it was only 45 days. Year two is Tishrei 5783 to Tishrei 5784. So that's the second year. The third year is 5784 to Rosh Hashanah 5785. At that point, subject to one adjustment I'm going to throw in, you only have had two years and 45 days. But halachically, that is considered to be three years. Okay, do you, do you get that idea? Because since the 45 days of 5782 counted as year one, and year two is then Tishrei to the next Tishrei, and year three is Tishrei to the next Tishrei, you have actually finished, subject to one exception, I'll get to, you have finished the Orla calculation two years and 45 days from planting. Now, there is a rule, however, that when you are relying on a fractionated year, you have to wait until two bishvat of your last year. So that's, that's very relevant, meaning to say, technically... So again, my case was, these are two different twos, two ba'av and two bishvat, but don't confuse them. If I plant my tree on two ba'av, that means the 15th of Av, so the three years of Orla are technically going to be over Rosh Hashanah of 5785, but I'm not allowed to eat any fruits that grow until two bishvat of 5785. I have to extend it a little bit, a little bit more. Uh, because Tubishvat is said to be the Rosh Hashanah for trees. Which means, in other words, that as long as I planted it on or before Tubiyav, my Orla period can actually be less than three years. Two years and 45 days plus the extension of time until Tubishvat. Now, that's only true if I planted it 45 or more days before the end of the year? What if I planted the tree after 
Tuba'av. Meaning I planted the tree and there's less than 45 days to the end of the year. So here, you really have a tough time. Year one doesn't count at all. That whole year is a zero. Even though it had 44 days of growth, it becomes a zero. And what that means is your count begins from Rosh Hashanah and you need three full years. You need, in other words, if I planted it, let's say Rosh Chodesh Elul of 5782, I don't get any of 5782. So I need three full years, 5783, 5784, 5785, and uh, I'm not out of Orla until Rosh Hashanah of 5786. And here I don't have to wait to Tubishvat. The, the requirement of waiting to Tubishvat is a Chumrah when you got the benefit of a partial year. But when you need three full years, then Orla is over. When the three full years are over, even without waiting to Tubishvat. Okay, so again, again, there are more ins and outs here. I, I don't want to overload you. Uh, but the one thing uh, to know uh, is that Tuba'av is a very critical date uh, because anything planted on or before Tuba'av gets you that year one towards Orla. If you plant after Tuba'av, you lose the, 40, you lose the 44 days, the Gamri, and you need three full years. But there's a leniency that when you have the three full years, you don't have to wait till two bishvat. Mashenki, uh, when you have the benefit of a partial year, the Chumrah of Orla extends until two bishvat, uh, two bishvat of the last year. Okay, everyone understands, understands what that means. Now again, let me, let me repeat, anything that is Orla is always forbidden, meaning it's not that those fruits are going to be permitted afterwards. If it's Orla, it's prohibited. Now, I kept on using the phrase, anything that grows in the Orla period is prohibited. What do I mean by grow? In other words, I have this Orla period, and fruit that belongs to the Orla period can never be eaten. But what has to happen for it to belong to the Orla period? So interestingly enough, it may not be what you think, uh, you don't need the fruit to be harvested during the Orla period, and you don't even need the fruit to ripen during the Orla period. What you need is something called Chanata. Now, the word Chanata is budding, right? B-U-D-D-I-N-G. Now, I don't know if any of you uh, have fruit trees, you're familiar with fruit trees. I'm certainly no, no big expert. But generally speaking, in fruit trees, uh, a tree produces a flower, and then eventually the flower falls off, and there's a bud, a bud in the middle of the flower, and that bud eventually grows into a fruit. Chanata is the budding after the perach, perach is the flower, after the perach, that's where the ches, falls off. So it's important to understand 
that even if 95% of the fruit grew after the Orla period, if the Chanata was during the Orla period, that fruit will be forbidden forever. Okay, because Ilanot, fruits of trees, are assigned to the time frame where there was Chanata. Okay? Now, some people mistranslate this. In fact, I remember just I'm thinking myself, I guess maybe some of my uh, Chavrusas were not uh, botanists, but for many, many years, uh, I remember being taught that Chanata meant blossoming, but it absolutely does not mean blossoming. Blossoming is the flower. Chanata is the bud after the flower, after the flower falls. So it's budding, it's not blossoming. Okay. Any, any questions about the, the general rule of Orla? Okay. Now, the second major question of Orla is when does the clock start running? Now, the clock starts running from when you plant the tree, right? But what is planting trees? Very, very few people today buy seeds. <laughs> if you want to have an apple tree in your backyard, whether it's Israel or Chutzlaret, you're not going to buy apple seeds or take apple seeds and that's Johnny Appleseed. You're not going to plant an apple tree because that's going to take years and years. So what do people do? You go to a nursery. And the nursery, you get a sapling, an already growing tree, and you replant it in your yard. Right? No, nobody plants, I mean, maybe, obviously some people plant it from seed. That's how you get trees. But the average home gardener does not plant a seed. The average home gardener plants a tree. Now, you understand that this is going to be very, very complicated. The tree is already five years old or three years old. So the Orla period from the time of its original planting may be gone already, may be finished. So a very critical question that a home gardener has to know is when does the clock start again? When I buy a sapling in a nursery and I replant it in my garden or even if initially I planted it in a flower pot, in a big pot and then at some point when it gets bigger I move it from the pot to the garden does that start the Orla period? Because if I can tack on the prior plantings, then the Orla period will be much shorter or maybe it's already finished. If, on the other hand, every time I move the tree and replant it, that's a new planting, that means every time I move it, I'm back to Orla again. Right? So that's, that's the most important question that you need to know. And again, this is not limited to Eretz Yisrael. This is even Nogeya to Chutz Uh When does replanting reset the Orla clock? And when do you just continue the pre-existing planting? So the short answer, but again, you have to ask a Rav who's, who's a Bucky in these halachos, is that it all depends on whether there was dirt on the roots or not. Meaning to say, when you typically buy a sapling and they uproot it from a pot or whatever it is, there will typically be a ball of dirt 
on the roots with nutrients, and it'll be in a bag, meaning you don't buy a tree with just roots. So as long as there's still dirt that could keep the tree alive, even for a relatively short time, <coughs> your replanting it in your garden <coughs> does not start the clock again. And therefore, if it was two years or three years that already passed, your orla period will either be short or non-existent. If, on the other hand, it's totally uprooted without dirt and nutrients, or the dirt and nutrients could not keep it alive for a significant amount of time, then your planting it is a replanting, and everything starts from uh, square one. Okay, so. Yeah. Like there are people who will like go to these like large um, like stores that like have nursery like plant nurseries. Yeah. And so say you buy a plant that's dying. Yeah. And you take it home, you rinse it out, and like help I guess like rehabilitate the plant. That would start the orla period. Yes, that would start the orla period. Now, now again, let me let me repeat. Orla only applies to trees that produce fruit. It does not apply to vegetables. And that's why even things like bananas, Orla does not apply to bananas because it's interesting, you know, as, as you know, banana, we make ha'adama on. We don't make ha'ets. And even though the banana plant is called a banana tree, halachically, in fact, this is an interesting question, halachically, it's not a tree. And why is that? Why isn't a banana tree called a tree? Because in order to be halachically a tree, you have to have a trunk that survives the winter, meaning to say when a plant dies and it gets regenerated from the ground, even though it's tall, that is actually called a plant. A plant. It is not called a tree. And the banana tree does not have a <coughs> trunk that survives the winter. Every year it grows. You don't have to replant it, but every year it grows from the roots up. So since a banana is not a tree, therefore the banana is not a fruit, so bananas do not have orla problems. In other words, in many ways, although it's, again, everything is machlokas, but in many ways, the laws of brachos and the laws of orla are going to coincide. Those things over which you make bore pre or eights will be the things that are subject to Orla. Those things that are Bore Prihadama will be things that are not subject to Orla. But again, uh, that's not absolutely the case, so, so you do have to check on this, but as a general rule, they usually correlate, yeah. Um, so I have like a hydroponics garden, and it's like a smart garden, so there's no trunks or mm -hmm. anything. Well, you say no trunk. What are you? Are you growing fruit or vegetables? What are you, what are you growing? I what are, I grow berries, but I don't know if berries in this category. Okay, so so most of the time, if there really is no trunk at all, there's roots. Yeah, there are roots. There are roots. No yeah, yeah. So so I wouldn't okay. worry. Yeah. I, there shouldn't be an orla problem with that that at all. So I th I think you're okay. But they would okay. remain fruit. Uh, well, Labdafka. Uh, many say hydroponic uh, is not. Uh, you make a shakol on it. You know, make it. You know, it's not considered a fruit. It's not considered a vegetable. It's a shakol thing. In fact, that's an issue with maror. You know, it's interesting. Hydroponic lettuce. Uh, any hydroponic produce 
has much less uh, insect infestation. That's one of the pluses for it. So some people want to use hydroponic lettuce for moror because one of the problems with moror is, you know, bugs. But on the other hand, some say you cannot use hydroponic moror because it has to, moror has to be something that you make boray prihadama, the fruit of the ground, and hydroponics you're not. But then it depends because there are different types of hydroponics. Some of them actually do have packets of soil attached to the roots. Uh, again, I, I don't know. Yeah. Comes in like a pod. Yeah. Um, and the pod has like the seeds, the soil. It's almost like an espresso machine. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. The pod has like the seed and the soil, and then there's water underneath, and it's in this like. Yeah, so so that's a little different because there is actual soil there. When there is actual soil, but even so, I, I don't think your thing would qualify as a tree. But in terms of hadama, it very well may may be hadama. That type of mara might be. So what do you, you always say shana What about an herb garden? An herb garden in in, 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 so, in but but there's soil right even as yeah. no no so certainly anything in soil even if it's detached from the ground will be hadama. Oh, okay. Yeah, the issue is only hydroponic without soil, oh, okay. which most of the time there actually is some soil. Do you have your garden here? No. Oh yeah, yeah we had to, had to do it. Here. Yeah. That's very nice. That sounds sounds beautiful. Okay. Alrighty. So this is what you need to know about orla. So if any of you are gardeners, etc., and you buy uh, saplings from nurseries, uh, you need to be aware of the Orla complications. But on the other hand, you don't have to worry about supermarket stuff because even though it might be Orla, but the halacha is in Chutzla Aretz, doubtful Orla is permitted. Only certain Orla is prohibited in Eretz Yisrael. Even doubtful Orla is prohibited, which is one of the reasons why Fruit in Eretz Yisrael, I mean, there are many reasons, but this is one of the reasons, must be certified by a rabbinic you know, organization because Orla is a problem. There are other problems as well, but Orla is one of the, one of the uh, problems uh, that we have. In fact, you'll see, a hashtokha will say something like, Naki me Orla. Right? You've seen, I'm sure you've seen that. Naki me Orla, it is free of Orla problems. And which hashkacha you trust is, you know, you, whoever, whatever they tell you, you know, whatever, I'm not going to get into which hashkachas are trustworthy uh, and the like, but you have to have a reliable hashkacha that something is naki michashash Orla. Okay. So that's one thing. Now, there's another halacha of agriculture that applies in Chutz Laaretz, but it's very, very rare. I want to mention it just as you should know. Uh, there are many halachas in the Torah uh, which go under the generic term kilayim. Kilayim, chaf, lamid, aleph, yud, final, mem. Kilayim. <coughs> and kilayim means mixtures, not mixing things together. And there are... And under Kalayim, there's all sorts of stuff that we're mixing together that may not even be connected uh, superficially. Uh, one example, of course, which is not about agriculture, is shatness. The halacha that you're not allowed to wear garments that have a mixture of wool and linen. Another word for shatness is Kalayim, or Kalei Begadim. That means mixtures in garments. Right. So shatness is a very important uh, halacha. Uh, by the way, again, just to clarify something, 
and this is obvious, but sometimes people get mixed up. There is nothing wrong with wearing wool and linen if they're separate garments. If I have a, a linen shirt and a wool sweater, even if they're touching, that's not a problem. Shotness is only when they're sewn together. It's like one garment. There's like linen mixed in with the wool or, or whatever it is. Okay, so... Uh, so if it's like a wool shirt, but then there's buttons with like a silk thread, is that the well, well silk, silk is not a problem. Well, wool and silk are not shotness. It's, it's badafka, wool and linen. So wool and silk is, is fine. But yeah, 100% correct. If I have a wool shirt and I have buttons that are sewn to the shirt with linen thread, that is absolutely shotness. That's absolutely prohibited. Now, the truth is how, I mean, shotness is a very chamor law. Uh, but the question, and we have shotness testers, right? We have professional people who are trained under, they, they take things under a microscope, under dyes, you know, they put dyes and they could determine if there's linen there and uh, they can sometimes fix it by just removing it. Other times they'll tell you, can't do anything uh, and the like. But the big question is, how much do you have to check for shotness? Meaning, if you don't know. So the truth is with the growth of <coughs> synthetic things like polyester and rayon, so, uh, which are much, much cheaper than linen. Wool is still used a lot, but linen is not used as much because linen is, is expensive. So again, uh, check with your local Orthodox rabbi what you need to check, what you don't need to check. But shotness can come up in surprising places. Uh, you know Uggs, those uh, slippers? Uh, for a number of years, Uggs slippers, I think now they fixed it, had shotness in them. They, they had the linen and wool in the slippers. Not allowed to wear those slippers. You'd have to go barefoot. If, if, if I would just, you know, see somebody wearing those slippers, take them off, you know? And sometimes it could even be worse. So let's say a person, is, I mean, the Gemara discusses the issue. Somebody's wearing shotness <laughs> and they'd have to go naked or whatever. So the halacha is, again, as strange as this sounds, uh, if you know you are wearing shotness, you must take it off in the middle of the street. So, interestingly enough, we have a machlokas. What if I know you're wearing shotness? Should I tell you? Because once I tell you, right? So, the rush rules that even though once you know you have to take it off, I shouldn't tell you until you're in a private place, which, which makes a lot of sense. That way, we avoid that embarrassment. A similar rule, by the way, is a Kohen. Let's say a Kohen is sleeping naked or in his underwear or something, and uh, God forbid a person died. Now normally, a Kohen cannot be in the same house as a dead body. So if the Kohen knew that somebody died, he'd have to leave. He, he, I mean, he couldn't, he could take his clothes, he could pick up his clothes, but he wouldn't be allowed to take the time to get dressed. <coughs> but it's brought down by the same analogy that if, this Kohen is in the house and somebody died, I have to tell the Kohen, get up, we have to leave, but I don't have to tell him why. And that way, I can give him time to get dressed so he can leave. You see, because if I were to tell him, you have to leave the house because somebody died, he would have to leave in whatever state he's in. Right? So there is a concept that kavod habrios, human dignity, 
allows us to defer telling somebody something. But shatnis is a chomer, is a chomer halacha. Uh, the Zohar says that if a person wears shatnis, that prevents his prayers, his tefillos, from going up to Shemayim. In fact, they tell an interesting story about, well, well let, let me give a few more examples. So shatnis can be in your shoes. Not shoes, but slippers. Shatnis can be in socks or stockings. Shatnis can be in sweaters. Shatnis can be in jackets. Shatnis can be in shirts. And shatnis can be in hats. Right? Stitching. Anything that has stitching could have shatnis in it. And, and the like. But again, as I say, some things we're, we're so sure they don't have shatnis, you don't have to check. There, there are books and lists that tell you what you have to check. Now, the problem of shatnis is only on things you wear. You wear. So I could have, for example, curtains. And if I have curtains in my house, curtains could be shotness. Tablecloths could be shotness. My shotness is about what you wear. But there's one exception to that, and that is uh, <coughs> upholstery should not, cannot be shotness. Now, again, we generally don't have to check for it, but the idea is because when you sit on a fabric the fabric crunches up, bunches up. So it kind of goes over you. So in a sense, you're wearing it in some ways. So upholstery, unless it's very stiff, if it's very stiff and it doesn't move, it could be shotness. So I could sit on a hard cushion that doesn't bunch up. But if it bunches up, there's actually shotness on upholstery. Is that why people will sometimes lay like a plastic covering over it? Uh, that's very fascinating. Uh, the, the, the traditional reason they give is that uh, Jewish mothers don't, don't want their sofas to get dirty. But, you know, I, li- I like what you're saying. That's really good. Uh, that maybe there's a deep halachic reason uh, for these things. Similar to gefilte fish, right? Why, 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 why was gefilte fish invented? Because there are halachos about removing bones on Shabbos. And gefilte fish pre-removes the bones to avoid a halachic issue, right? So, so it is true that Jewish customs are in order to keep halacha. So let me tell you a, an amazing story about the Stipler gun of Yaakov Israel Kanievsky. He was the father of Rav Chaim Kanievsky, who died last year, but Stipler himself was a very, very great gadol. In fact, I myself once met the Stipler. I had to ask him a shayla. I think I may have told you the story. Forgive me for repeating it. Uh, the Stipler was very deaf, pretty deaf. Uh, and as a result, he could hear if you screamed at him, but who's, who's going to scream at him? But, the, but because he was deaf, he screamed at you, meaning a person who doesn't hear can talk very, very loudly. So I came in to ask him a shayla about something or ask her a bracha, and it was towards the end of his life, and he was like sleeping in the chair, and I was waiting, <coughs> I was waiting you know, until uh, you know, uh, I wasn't going to say anything. All of a sudden, he wakes up with a start. And he starts screaming at me. I was scared to death. And he said, why do people come to me for a bracha? He says, I'm an old man. I'm going to die. He says, Hashem gives all the brachas. Why do they come to me? What can I do? He's yelling at me. And, and, this, and I have my bracha, my request for a bracha to give to him. And I said, yeah, here's mine. You know. <laughs> you know. Uh, he was actually very nice at that, after that, but it was very, very scary, like whatever. So, but the story goes, his wife 
was the Chazunish's sister. Chazunish was a great, great rabbi who died in the 1950s. So the story goes, the Chazunish made the Shidduch. He made the Shidduch because he saw the stipler as a great person. And he asked his sister afterwards, when they met, you know, they had one meeting. So he asked his sister, how did the meeting go with, uh, with, this, with Rav Yaakov Yisrael? So she said, I don't know. He comes into the house, he sits at the table, and he falls asleep. Mm-hmm. He says... So the Chazanish was upset. The Chazanish calls him and said, what type of business? You know, you're meeting someone that you might marry and just fall asleep. So he said, I'm really, really sorry. What happened was that uh, I uh, bought a train ticket and I got bumped to first class. I bought coach, but the coach was crowded, so they bumped me to first class. First class trains in Europe have very, they used to have very plush upholstery. So he said, I didn't want to sit down because I thought it might be shotness. It was like a 30-hour train trip. So I stood standing for 30 hours because I didn't want to sit on shotness. So what happened was, when I finally had a chair, (laughs) I just fell asleep. That was the story. So the Chazanus said, oh, now for sure you're the right person. (laughs) Sister and, 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 and the like. And in fact, they even say his deafness was because of Shadness, interestingly enough. Because he was drafted in the Russian army around World War I, and he had to do guard duty for a whole night, back and forth, in a Russian winter. And he was afraid that the hat he had to wear was Shadness, so he didn't wear a hat. And that damaged his eardrum. So Shadness was also uh, contributing to his uh, hearing difficulties. And, and the like. Although they say, they do say, I'm not sure if it's serious, that whenever his wife spoke to him, his rabbis, and he always, he always heard that. I don't know. Uh, he was hard of hearing, but he was so attuned to his rabbis that uh, he always heard her. Okay. Um, so that's shatness. So that's one type of kalayim. Now, I'm just giving you a laundry list of kalayim. It's called. Yeah, do you have a question? I've heard that if you're wearing a linen shirt, you can't put on a wool sweater on top. Because if you can't take one off... Yeah, that is, that, is, that is correct. Meaning to say, they have to be connected either by sewing or that they come out together. So, for example, a tie. You couldn't have, uh, on a wool shirt, you could, or a linen shirt, you couldn't have a wool tie because the tying connects it. Now, so the issue of sweater is a similar <coughs> idea. If I can't pull it off without, uh, you know, uh, together, so they're considered to be one... One garment, yeah, that, that, that is correct. Okay, now, another type of kalayim, which won't apply to most of us, is you're not allowed to plow with two different types of animals. So if you plow with a horse and a cow, you're not allowed to do that. Either, uh, right, or, or even if you have a coat, you're not allowed to be drawn by a shore, a chamor, a donkey, and the like. Okay, that's the second one. A third one is interesting. It is prohibited to interbreed species. Now, most species do not interbreed. I mean, you can't, you know, mate a, uh, a goat and uh, a cow. But some species do interbreed, and the most uh, famous example is a mule. A mule is a uh, breeding of a horse and a donkey. 
And there are different names. If it's a male horse and a female donkey, it's one name. I don't remember which one. And if it's a female horse and a male donkey, it's another name. Both of them are mules, but they go, there's a Ginny mule and another type of mule. I don't remember which one is which. Now, you're not allowed to mate, breed. Now, that does raise interesting questions about dogs. Uh, dogs can interbreed all the time, right? Uh, these are mutts. Uh, but again, you understand the question. Halachically, dogs are dogs. So halachically, we don't regard them as different species. In fact, the test generally is that if you're interbreeding different species, they will be sterile. A mule is sterile. A, a mule cannot... Be, in fact, some say that that's the assode of why the Torah prohibits interbreeding, because interbreeding essentially creates sterility in God's creations. And... There is actually a halacha that you're not supposed to castrate or neuter animals. In fact, that raises a whole peripheral question of number one, how can you be a religious veterinarian? Veterinarians spay dogs and cats. And number two, if you're a pet owner, what do you do? Because it's highly advisable that if you have a dog or a cat, you should get the dog or cat neutered and yet, halachically, you're not allowed to sterilize animals. That's actually a difficult question. Uh, the advice I would give to a from pet owner <coughs> is buy your pet already neutered. And that way you don't have to go through that difficult question. Uh, how a veterinarian does it, again, is an interesting halachic issue. But the same idea of not neutering might apply to not crossbreeding as well. Okay, so all of these are called kalayim. Now, there is a fourth element. I'm, I'm just giving you examples of kalayim, meaning the mixture laws. So I've mentioned shotness, wool and linen. I mentioned not uh, having a, uh, two different types of animals draw a cart. Uh, I mentioned not interbreeding. Now, let's take the not interbreeding for a moment. The prohibition is to mate them. The prohibition is not to use them meaning I'm allowed to ride on a mule. I'm allowed to use the mule as a work animal. I could buy a mule for a pet if I wanted to. Uh, so this is not an isser to use. This is can only an isser to actually breed them. Huh? Can we own them? You can own them. Yeah, you can own a mule. Yeah, 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 yeah. And as I say, it only applies to different species. So different breeds of dogs would not be a problem because we treat the dogs as one species, we treat cats as one species. An interesting issue though is wolf. You know, I, this is, a, this is a quite a dangerous pet, but some people like them. Uh, they breed wolves and dogs. What are they called? It's a... Husky. Well, well, a husky looks like a wolf, but a husky is a pure, is a pure dog, but, but they can make uh, puppies that are uh, uh, from a wolf and from a dog and they're not as domesticated, meaning they could turn on you, so it's, it's not uh, advisable. But that might be usher to do. It might literally be forbidden to mate a dog and a wolf. Although I'm not sure because they're, they're fertile. In other words, they're not, they're not sterile. So maybe that indicates even a wolf and a dog is one species. I mean, genetically, wolves and dogs are one species. If you go all the way back, however <coughs> long you go, because the dog uh, came from the gray wolf. But, you know, they've been separated for a while. Okay. 
Imagine the first guy that approached a gray wolf. It's a little scary, but so somehow that, that became the dog, you know. Okay. All right. Uh, now, another one is grafting trees. Now, again, if you're a gardener, this, this creates some great problems. Grafting is a process by which you take part of one tree better root system or something, and you connect it to another tree, and sometimes sometimes you might use, uh, you know, the roots of an apple tree and graft it onto a pear tree. Now, that doesn't mean you'll get apples and pears. You may only get one fruit, although there is a way. There, there actually is art ways of grafting in which you can get 10 different fruits growing on one tree. There actually is such a thing. But not all grafting is that way. A lot of grafting is just to strengthen a root system or the like. The Torah prohibits both, these are two things, both the creation of new fruits and even grafting from one species of tree to another species of tree, even if you're not going to create a new fruit, because once again, you're deviating from God's creation, right? God made all the different species, and every different species is described as ketov. It was good in God's eyes. So for you to create these new types of species is a violation of Hashem's original plan. Now again, just like with the mule, the prohibition is to make them, meaning you're allowed to buy and eat a nectarine, which is a combination, I believe, of a peach and an apricot. I think so. You're allowed to eat them. You're just not allowed to make them. You're not allowed to graft them. You're not allowed to create the grafting that produces that particular thing. Are you allowed to plant an existing nectarine tree? That's, that's an interesting question. On one hand, you're not creating the grafting, but on the other hand, you're planting the grafted entity. So that would be a question, yeah. Okay, this is not like a fruit or anything, but can you know how sometimes you tie orchard, orchards, 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 orchids? <laughs> wow, yeah. that word in a long time. Around the tree, it's okay. For what? For what does that do? What is not creating anything. Oh, it's just decorative. Yeah. No, that's perfectly oh. fine. That's perfectly fine. The problem is only when you're creating a new growing entity. Uh, yeah, yeah. Orchids around the tree, flowers around the tree is perfectly good. Now again, all of these, I'm, I'm mentioning a whole bunch of things here, all of these things are simply examples of colliding, mixtures. And in fact, let me, let me just mention, the laws of meat and milk are mixture laws. Don't mix milk and meat. Right? So the Torah clearly has a general idea that things that are separate should be separated. You don't just bring them, bring them together. Okay, yeah. Sorry, we have a question. I know we're not talking about meat and milk, yeah. but is there any opinion on when you use dairy substitutes and you're mixing it with meat, and it's like it's obviously not the mixture of dairy and meat. Yeah. But you're cook, like you're. You're still making like a creamy... Oh, sure. That, that's, a very, that's a very, very good question. Uh, it was addressed by the Ramah in the 1500s. And the Ramah says the following, and we'll see how it applies today in a moment. The Ramah says, he talked about Cholav Shekedim. Cholav Shekedim means almond milk. 
And he says, you are only allowed to cook meat in almond milk if there are pieces of almonds in the milk so people know it's not milk. Because without pieces of almonds, there is what we call maris ayin, right? Maris ayin means appearances, meaning even if it's not milk, but if it looks like milk, people will think you're using meat and milk. So the interesting point is, again, it's not our topic today, but the interesting point is, so how does that apply with all the different types of milks we have today that don't have any solid pieces in them? Non-dairy creamer, or almond milk, or coconut milk, or oat milk, a million things, Uh, or hemp milk, you know, they have a a million different substitutes. Uh, Are you allowed to use them with meat, or do you have to, right? So many opinions say the following, many opinions say (coughs) that once it is well known that these products exist, so we no longer have the fear that people will think you're using real milk. People understand that. Uh, although you never know, I remember, I remember reading a story, a very disturbing story, about two rabbis. Uh, one was a very, very great gadol, and the other was uh, less of a gadol. But they both came to a, a Jewish inn that supposedly was serving kosher food, and uh, they ordered chicken. And uh, the great rabbi just uh, got a stomachache all of a sudden, and he said, "Mm, I just can't eat now. So the other rabbi ordered the chicken and ate it, and he said, "Uh, this is the most delicious chicken I've ever had. Like, what is your secret? So the person said, I don't know how, said, ah, it's the butter, butter that we put in. (laughs) So I I don't know how how, how that would even happen, but... Essentially, the, the story was trying to say that the rabbi who was so great, Hashem would not let him commit a sin even accidentally, so Hashem gave him a stomachache. So he wouldn't eat, the other person... So sometimes you never know, but still, as I say, we're generally lenient today uh, on non-dairy milks because these are so widely known and used that people are not going to suspect anything wrong. Yeah. Are you allowed to graft within a species, so different kinds of apples? Yes, so it's the same idea here. The same idea is this is only interspecies. Now, this does give interesting questions about genetic engineering. Because in genetic engineering, sometimes DNA is taken from very, very different sources. In fact, there's even a cautious problem. Uh, In preservation of tomatoes, there was some DNA taken from a pig. So besides the problem of interbreeding, you have a problem of, of, of uh, pig, you know, pig DNA. But still, since that's microscopic, so that's also uh, another reason why it's not, not necessarily a problem. Okay, but now, uh, the particular one that applies to you as a gardener, which is very, very rare, is that if you are planting a vineyard, grapes, you must distance any vegetables or grain from the vineyard at least four amos, meaning you cannot have grains or vegetables in proximity to a vineyard. This is called kilo'e hakerem, mixtures of the vineyard. And the halacha of kilo'e hakerem does apply 
both in Eretz Yisrael and in Chutz Oretz, and the consequences of Koloi HaKerem is very severe because that means whatever grew as they were next to each other becomes prohibited and must be burnt and destroyed. So if any of you have vineyards and you planted vegetables or grain near the vineyards, whatever grew in that mixed condition would have to be destroyed. So we're not talking about interbreeding, we're just talking about proximity. Even proximity to create kolayim. Now, this only applies to a vineyard with grain or vegetables next to the vineyard. It does not apply to trees. So I could have an apple tree near a vineyard and that's not a problem at all. Okay, it's not a problem with trees. It's a problem with vegetables and grain. Why vegetables? Huh? Why vegetables? Uh, well, the Torah, the, the Torah says anything that um, has to be planted every year. So vegetables and grain are the same. Now, what about if I don't have a vineyard? What if I have a garden, and this is a real question, and I have tomatoes next to cucumbers, next to peas, meaning there's no vineyard here, but there's simply different types of vegetables. So here, there actually is a difference between Israel and Chutzlaretz. In Eretz Yisrael, even different types of vegetables have to be distanced from each other. So if you were to have a flower, if you were to have a planter outside of your apartment, and in the planter, you want, now it doesn't apply to flowers, it only applies to things that you eat, but you want to have a pepper plant, a tomato plant, a <coughs> cucumber, you would have to, again, the laws are very technical. You'd have to have a certain distancing between them. You would not be allowed to have them right next to each other. This is called kala'e zira'im, mixtures of plants. And that only applies in Israel, Eretz Yisrael. That does not apply in Chutz La'aretz. In Chutz La'aretz, it is only kala'e ha'kerem. It is not kala'e Zeraim. And another difference is only Kaloi HaKerem is the product forbidden to eat. Kaloi Zeraim is Mutradi. In other words, even in Eretz Yisrael. Let's say in Eretz Yisrael, if I grew cucumbers and tomatoes next to each other, I'm not allowed to do it, but I would be allowed to eat the produce. Masha'en Kain Kaloi HaKerem, I have to destroy the produce. Okay, so again, uh, obviously these are complicated and it shows you that life in Eretz Yisrael is full of challenges. Uh, but Kaloi HaKerem, which is going to be very rare, I doubt any of you will ever face that particular issue, but Kaloi HaKerem does apply in Chutz La'aretz as, as well. Okay, so uh, we did quite a lot today. Uh, we looked at Orla, and we looked at kalayim and all the different types of, of, of kalayim. Um, one thing about uh, meat, let me mention as an aside, although it's not, it's not the topic, but since you were asking about meat and milk, you know, the same way you have, of course, artificial milk, like soy milk, you also have artificial meat, like soy meat. Now, generally speaking, no problem. You can have a cheeseburger with real cheese and soy protein, 
and you can have a cheeseburger with real meat and soy cheese. So that's not a problem. That's a Marisayan issue, and as the Bismanazah, as since these products are widely known, the idea of appearances no longer applies. But we have a new question on the horizon. It's not so new anymore. Okay, soy meat is parif, right? Soy meat I can have with cheese. But now we have laboratory-grown meat, which is very, very different. This is actual meat. This is genetically <coughs> meat. Now, what do they do? Now, in fact, it's, it's, it's already, I, th- I think it may already be available. I mean, I remember when it first came out, I think to make a hamburger, the hamburger would have cost $10,000. So nobody was going to uh, buy a $10,000 hamburger. But now I, I think they're really on the verge of making this commercial. Now, how do they grow laboratory meat? They take stem cells, they take cells from cows and they culture the cells in a certain medium in which it keeps on growing, right? A, cell, a muscle fiber cell, because what is meat? Meat are muscle fibers, that's what meat is. And from one little cell, they can culture it in a, in a Petri dish you eventually get, you know, a pound of meat or whatever, whatever, whatever it would be. Now, in terms of economics, this makes a lot of sense because uh, you wouldn't have to kill that many animals, etc. It would really, once the technology could be less expensive, it could save a lot of money, it could save the environment uh, and the like. So the big question about laboratory, right, so do not confuse laboratory-grown meat with soy protein. Soy protein is vegetarian. That's not a problem, but this is real meat. So there are two questions, really. Number one, is it kosher at all? Why is there a kosher problem? If if it comes from a pig, it's not kosher. But if it comes from a cow, why isn't it kosher? Very, very simple. Just because meat comes from a kosher animal doesn't make it kosher unless it is shechted. It has to be slaughtered. Now here, if you take meat, if I cut off a piece of meat from an animal while it's alive, that animal is strife, or that meat is strife. That's called Avram and Achai. That's a limb that is severed from a live animal. So the problem is, is laboratory-grown meat, Aver, meat, from a live animal that wasn't shechted. So, as you would imagine, people are discussing this because it's going to be a big industry. It is going to be mamash, a big industry. Very recently, the Israeli chief rabbinate issued a psaq that not everybody will agree with, that laboratory-grown meat does not have the problem of aver menachai. Why is that so? Because... It's true that the initial stem cell that you took from the animal is prohibited. But the culturing of new cells that come into the test tube are no longer from the animal because they're detached. And therefore we apply a rule called nullification in 60. Are you familiar with nullification in 60? Let's go over the rule generally. There is a rule in halacha, a very important rule, that if something is forbidden, but it is mixed in a volume of 60 times more, or, or more than that, 
it is called nullified and non-existent. The classic example would be if some milk are, uh, accidentally falls into a big <laughs> cauldron of soup, flachic soup. So meat and milk would be forbidden. But if there is 60 times more meat soup than the milk, the milk is nullified and you can eat the meat soup. And this is not only true for meat and milk, this is even true for chazer. If a little bit of chazer, pig, fell into the soup, if there's 60 times, you're allowed to eat it. Now, that doesn't mean you can, okay, that doesn't mean if you know that this is the piece of pork, you can't eat what you know, but in terms of the taste, right, you take out the pork and throw it away, but the soup itself is going to be okay. This is called batel b'shishin, nullification in 60. And it's based on the idea that Chazal had a rule that when there's 60 times something keneged, uh, the, uh, the iser, it's no longer detectable, it's no longer tasted. That's called batel b'shishin. Now, there are some exceptions where we don't say batel b'shishin. The most outstanding example is chametz on Pesach. That if a little bit of chametz fell into your soup, even if it's a thousand times the chametz, you're not allowed to eat it. Right? So chametz you know, is one of the exceptions to batal b'shishim. But the rabbinate made the following argument. The only part of the meat that is prohibited meat is the part that was taken from the cow before it was slaughtered. But that's a tiny little thing. It's virtually microscopic. It then grows a million times new fibers. The new fibers are not really meat from the animal. And therefore, you have many times 60. You have 10,000 times. You may have a million times the stem cell. So they argue that it's batel b'shishim meaning the prohibited meat taken from the cow will be nullified in 60. Now, not everybody agrees. Some say it's not, uh, we won't, won't apply nullification here, but the rabbinate say yes. But then you have the second question. Okay, if we assume it is permitted, is it fleshic? Is it meat? Or is it parif? Meaning, can I have a cheeseburger with it? Meaning, can I use laboratory meat for a cheeseburger? So here, the rabbinate made kind of a funny ruling. They actually said yes, but only if it's not commercially called meat. Meaning, you, you call it meats. I mean, it is meat. It is chemically, it is meat. But if you call it meat, then it's like uh, people will think it's real, regular meat and, and the like. So it has to be called by some name where they know it's not going to be regular meat. But even so, what that means is, in theory, putting aside appearances, in theory, the rabbinate is saying it's parif. Okay? Now again, I am, not, I am absolutely not giving you this as a psak halacha, because uh, both, both points of the rabbinate's uh, argument are not accepted by everybody. But all I'm saying is that they are opening the door towards laboratory, laboratory meat. Right? So... Um, that would actually mean a real cheeseburger, real cheese, and real meat, but because it was laboratory generated, it doesn't have the halachas of uh, basar. 
Okay, so that's uh, one thing to, to keep in mind. Okay, um, I lost my train of thought because that was, was a digression on something. Okay, uh, but these are, again, some of the halachas of mixing that we need to be concerned about. Again, kashrus has many ins and outs. You know, uh, what, you know, some things don't make, you know, logically you start thinking about it. Why isn't all milk fleshic? I mean, after all, milk comes from meat. Uh, why aren't, why are eggs paruf? So why is milk milchik and why are eggs paruf, right? Eggs come from chickens. And then why is honey kosher at all? Not, not date honey. Why is bees honey kosher? A bee is not a kosher animal. You're not allowed to eat a bee, right? It's a forbidden insect. So why would the honey, which is a secretion of the bee, why would that be kosher? Mm-hmm. Now the Gemara says, well, we don't regard the honey as a secretion from the bee because essentially it's just the processing of nectar, meaning to say the bee sucks in <coughs> the nectar from flowers and plants and that just gets processed in its digestive system, but essentially it's nectar. It's not part of the bee's uh, body per se. It's just in and out. But on the other hand, this is why there's a difference between bee honey and royal jelly. I don't know if you're familiar with this. Royal jelly is a superfood. Actually, it's a really, really amazingly healthy, nutritious. Uh, those who are into this uh, claim it's like a miracle thing. And what is royal jelly? Royal jelly uh, is the special food that the queen bee gets. By the way, bees are fasc- fascinating. Bees are uh, like the most amazing animals that Hashem created uh, because they have this, they, they pick, they literally coronate, they, they, they take this bee and they make it the queen and who even knows why they chose that one and that queen bee lives a life of luxury. Uh, she does have to reproduce a lot, she has to reproduce like uh, a thousand bees, etc. But she's the queen and she gets a special diet, a special diet that nobody else eats but the queen bee and Royal jelly is glandular secretions of the drone bees, which can only be eaten by the queen bee. Because it's super rich in nutrients, and this, this maximizes her fertility. She keeps the, the bees alive. So there's a big, big machlokas. Okay, honey is kosher. We know that. Honey is kosher. Is royal jelly kosher? And many, many opinions say royal jelly is not kosher because it is a direct glandular secretion from the bee, and the direct glandular secretions are treif. Okay, so you have to be mechalic. Honey is uh, different than royal jelly. Other opinions, there is a minority opinion that says royal jelly is just like honey. Uh, so these are things you got to be uh, careful about. Okay, so, so kashrus has a lot of anomalies, uh, milk being dairy rather than fleshing, eggs being parif, honey being kosher. Right? These are all sorts of ins and outs of kashrus that are a little unusual. Okay, um, so uh, next week I'm going to continue with this, and less, it will be less difficult next week. I, I still want to talk about truma, the tithes, and the mosheres. And how come we don't do it today? Meaning, we don't give truma to a Kohen, and we don't give maser to a Levi. 
even though the Torah says to do it. And the question is, what does the Torah say to do and what do we do today? And why don't we do what the Torah says you're supposed to do? Okay, so that, that'll be the second part of this. Okay, wish you all a very good week. Good Shabbos. Robert, I, uh, I ran into Rena Quinn today. Oh, okay. At, um, Doctor's office. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. You and I, I was. I, uh, Did you know it was? I was at a meal actually, and, and, and all the women who were going to her place afterwards, and they invited me. Yeah. 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 Ye